<clears throat> one of the things I enjoy doing is reading children's books. I find good children's books. I find there's often uh, so much wisdom in them in a very simple, uh, light, and accessible way. <clears throat> One of my favorites is The Little Prince. And there's a line from that I wanted to share with you, which seems to bear so much of what we've been doing together this week. In it, he says, in French, And now here is my secret, a very simple secret. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. And so for me, this has so much to do with this practice of cultivating the heart, of learning to see not from here, but from here and to see in both directions, to see this way and to see this way. Many of you have shared in the interviews and in the questions, just the whole range of experiences that arise in the course of this practice and how sometimes it feels like the heart gets a real workout. The openings, these floods of joy and happiness or sadness and anger or hurt, or numbness, the heart feeling hard or dead or dry, or just balanced, just okay, not much going on. Is there something wrong with that? The whole range. And so one of the themes that we keep coming back to from the very beginning all the way through to the end is this theme of balance. And in the practice, this thread, this um, process of balance is essential from the beginning all the way through to the end. And in the very sort of mechanism of the practice, we're balancing our energies. We're balancing calm and concentration with energy and vigor. In the Brahma-vihara practices, we've been looking at the range of these orientations of the heart, kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and recognizing that if we only look at the bright side, at the kindness and the celebration, that that's unbalanced, that we don't act, we're out of touch in some way. And if we only look at the difficult things, at the hard side, at the compassion, that that's also out of balance. We become cynical, we become paralyzed. And so one of the analogies that's used in the Buddhist tradition is that the Dharma is like a great bird with two wings and both wings are needed to fly. One wing is the wing of compassion which for me represents all of these, these heart qualities we've been cultivating. And the other is the wing of wisdom, of seeing clearly and understanding. And they need each other. And this balance is mirrored in the Brahma-viharas themselves. What I'd like to talk about tonight is the practice and quality of equanimity. What this is, um, how we understand it, how it functions in our practice and in our life and how we can practice with it. <clears throat> I'll give a much fuller definition in a few moments, but just to begin with, for those who may be new to this term, equanimity is a balance of mind. It sees and feels the whole range of joy and sorrow, the ups and downs of life, and is able to stay balanced. 
within all of that. There's an even-mindedness. As Sharon mentioned, in the Tibetan practice, equanimity is taught first, before the other Brahma-viharas, because it's so essential. And it has been a theme that has come up again and again in our questions, our conversations. So these, these four divine abodes, or these best homes that we've been exploring, are holistic. They work together. And one way to understand them is as the natural response of an open, balanced, and unconstricted heart. That this, this capacity we have as humans, not just to feel and sense things with our body and, and our other senses, but with this heart, with the ability to feel compassion, to feel joy, to feel kindness, that the natural response of a heart that is unburdened, unconstricted, that is free, are these four Brahma-viharas. And when this open, responsive, resonant heart meets life in general, its response is care, is kindness, is metta. When the open heart meets suffering or pain, its response is compassion. How can I help? What can I do? How can I ease this? When the open heart meets joy and happiness, its response is to celebrate. Yay! And when the open heart meets the inevitable changes of life, its response is balance. One of the ways of understanding the relationship of these is it's likened to raising a child. And when the child is an infant, the response is this metta, just this care and pure love. And as the infant grows and goes through the growing pains, the response is compassion to alleviate the suffering. And in the teenage years, as it begins to, uh, as the child begins to take care of itself and have some strength and success, the response is, is joy, is celebration. And then as the child moves on and begins its own life as an adult, the response is equanimity, is letting go, is recognizing that they're not ours to to hold on to. And these work together. So the first three are balanced by equanimity. Equanimity purifies them, which means that there's an understanding that things are going to go the way they're going to go, that we're not in control of the outcome of things. And equanimity is informed and infused with the heartfulness of the others. So metta misses the mark when it becomes grasping or attachment. Compassion misses the mark when we fall into it and it becomes sorrow or overwhelm. Sympathetic joy misses the mark when it becomes unbalanced, when it's ungrounded. We become exuberant and only see the positive things and we lose touch with reality. And equanimity misses the mark when the other qualities aren't present and it becomes indifference. When it becomes what's called in the text as the equanimity of unknowing or stupid equanimity. (laughs) There are inspiring examples that we have in human history of when these qualities are present and working together. There's a story that some of you may 
know of the Dalai Lama's physician, uh, Tenzin Chodrak, who was imprisoned and tortured by the Chinese uh, government for 17 years. And when he was released and met with the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama apparently asked him if he was ever afraid. And he said, once, when I sensed that my mind might move into anger towards towards my, my torturers. So this is the power and the strength of these qualities when they're developed to a high degree, that the mind can stay connected to the intention towards humanity and the balance, the understanding, to not move into responses of anger and ill will and confusion. <clears throat> so this balance of mind, this steadiness of heart, it's an equilibrium, an equipoise, it gives us the space to feel things. One of the phrases I like to use is equanimity gives us the space to feel, the space to heal, and the balance to act. And so I'll be talking about those this evening, those different categories. Without equanimity, when we encounter things in life that are difficult, when things don't go our way, the mind wobbles. It reverberates, it reacts. The opposite of equanimity is attachment and aversion, is this reactivity. There's a, uh, a good story of um, a simple example of equanimity. Uh, in one of the early retreats at Yucca Valley, um, out in the southwest in Southern California, it was a the very large retreat. Sharon was there, I was not. And um, all of the shoes of all of the yogis were outside the hall. And after the Dharma talk one evening, everyone comes outside and a lot of the shoes are gone. So, you know, here is everyone on a meditation retreat. How do they respond? There was a monk, a Sri Lankan monk on the retreat who walked outside and his shoes were gone. And his response, he just giggled and said, no shoes. (laughs) And kept walking. This is equanimity, you know. Of course he wanted his shoes, but... You know, no no shoes. Okay, this is how it is. <clears throat> so, as I was saying, equanimity isn't apathy or indifference. It's not not caring. Indifference is an escape. It's a defense. It comes from actually not wanting to feel something. Ajahn Suchito says, apathy has a dulling quality to it. An ignorance, a shrug. There's no shrug in equanimity. It has clarity, sensitivity, stability. It's a wise space. Equanimity doesn't mean that we don't feel things. It's not a numbness. It doesn't mean that we're not able to take action. It means that the mind stays balanced. It actually gives us the space to feel whatever's happening and stay balanced within that. There are two examples of equanimity that the Buddha had in the suttas that I find very powerful and instructive in this regard, that equanimity doesn't mean not having feelings. So the first is he's talking about, we hear a lot about the four foundations of mindfulness. He's talking about three foundations of mindfulness, which by which a teacher is fit to instruct a group. And he's talking about himself. And he says 
that one teaches compassionate, seeking the welfare of others, of, their, of the students, one teaches the Dhamma. And he said that there are these three scenarios that might happen. He says, sometimes my disciples don't listen, they don't pay attention, they don't understand, they don't follow the instructions. He says, in that situation, the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself, the Tathagata is not satisfied, feels no satisfaction. So clearly there's some feeling there. He's not satisfied, yet he dwells unmoved, mindful, fully aware, balance. Then there's a situation in which some of the disciples listen, pay attention, they try to understand and follow the instructions, and others don't. He says, in this situation, the Tathagata is neither satisfied nor dissatisfied. He abides free from satisfaction and dissatisfaction, dwelling in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. So there's this sense that, you know, this isn't the preference, but he's neither pleased nor displeased, and his dwelling balanced, is clearly aware of what's happening. In the last scenario, the disciples listen, they pay attention, they try to understand, they follow the instructions. Guess what? The Tathagata is satisfied and feels satisfaction, yet he dwells unmoved, mindful, fully aware. So here we have this example of the Buddha saying, things go one way or another. It's not my preference. I would prefer that the disciples practice and listen. You know, I'm not satisfied, but it doesn't trouble me. I'm unmoved. I dwell equanimous, mindful, aware. The other example is when his two chief disciples, Sariputta and Moggallana, pass away. They'd been with him from the very beginning. They were actually seekers who were friends from childhood, and they were practicing with another teacher. And they had made a pact that whoever discovered the deathless first, whoever had that experience, would tell the other one. So Sariputta was walking, and he saw a monk, a disciple of the Buddha's. And the monk's comportment said something to him, that there's something special here. I, I want to go speak to this monk and see who his teacher is and what he teaches. So he waited till the monk finished his alms and then went to him and asked. <clears throat> and the monk said, you know, I'm just a beginner, but I can tell you the teaching in brief. And so he tells him that, you know, I'm a disciple of Gautama Buddha and his teach, he teaches everything that arises, that which has a cause, he teaches. And he teaches the end of that, everything that arises, the end of it. And hearing that, Sariputta woke up, the first stage of enlightenment. And so Sariputta goes to Moggallana and tells him what happened and tells him that passage, and Moggallana wakes up, first stage of enlightenment. So then they go and become disciples of the Buddha. He ordains them, and as soon as he sees them coming, he says, these two will be my chief disciples, and they give many discourses. So they both die in the span of two weeks before the Buddha dies. So you, you know, one wonders, how is this for, for the Buddha? And he says, first Ananda comes to him and is weeping and crying. And the Buddha chides Ananda and says, have I not told you, you know, everything that comes into being will pass away. You know, we're training to understand this. Why are you so upset? Didn't you know this could not be any other way? This is the way it is. And then he addresses the bhikkhus, the assembly. And he, he says, it is just as if the largest branch 
would break off a great tree standing. Because this assembly appears to me empty now that Sariputta and Moggallana have gone. So I don't know about you, but I can feel the loss in that, yeah? The space to feel. And then he says, and it is wonderful, it is marvelous, it is amazing that when such a pair of disciples has passed into final Nibbana, there is no sorrow or lamentation in the Tathagata. His heart remains balanced. So this is the vision. This is, this is the possibility to have the space to feel, but to stay balanced. So equanimity gives us perspective on things. It's not cold or unfeeling. The, 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 the analogy, the, the metaphor that I prefer is space rather than distance. Distance separates, space includes. Equanimity gives us a wide space. When it's really developed, we have a really wide space to live in. And that space, in that space, there's balance. There's a, a Taoist saying, one forgets one's feet when the shoes are comfortable. One forgets one's waist when the belt is comfortable. But who knows the comfort of forgetting that which is comfortable? Who knows the comfort of forgetting that which is comfortable? To let go of our preferences, to not have such a, such a, such a strong hold on the way we want things to be, the comfort of that. So I spoke a few nights ago about how I don't really like to travel. That's a preference of mine. But it's not a problem. I don't suffer over it. It's okay. Yeah, the space to feel. <clears throat> The Buddha offered teachings to his son Rahula on this. And the analogies that he, he offered were make your meditation like space, make your meditation like air, like the earth, like water, like fire. Because then, just as with each of these, when agreeable and disagreeable things contact them, they're not repelled, they're not disgusted. People throw urine and feces and blood and pus and trash on the earth or in the fire or in the water. And it is not, it doesn't react. As I'm saying this, I'm feeling sad and realizing that it does, you know. (laughs) But I think we can see, you know, we can see what the Buddha is pointing at. The, The sense of the vastness of the earth, of the ocean, that it can absorb to a certain degree. So in light of what the mind normally does, going up and down on a roller coaster, we can see that it takes some work, yeah, to have this kind of balance. To, and it's a process. There's a sutta called the Mangala Sutta that some of you may know. This is a sutta in which the Buddha teaches about all of the blessings in life. And it's a whole teaching, a complete teaching. It begins with the blessings of... Um, living an ethical life and doing right by one's family and one's friends and having a good livelihood and good education and all the way up through hearing the Dhamma and practicing and realizing the the Four Noble Truths and and realizing Nibbana. And then there's something that comes after that. There's a blessing that comes after realizing Nibbana, 
equanimity. If you look at many of the lists in Buddhism, many of the templates for teaching, equanimity comes at the end. It's a fruit. In the Mangala Sutta, it says, a mind when touched by the worldly dhammas is unshaken, sorrowless, dustless, secure. This is the highest blessing. When untouched by the the changes in the world, which I'll speak about in a few minutes, the mind is unshaken, secure. So this is after Nibbana, he says this. So equanimity is a fruit. It's important, I think, to understand that this is, this is one of the results of our practice. Goenkaji liked to say that um, there are two results that our practice bears that we can see over time. One is gratitude, that we're more aware of the things we have in this life. There's contentment and appreciation for that which is here. And the other is equanimity, that we find over time we have less reactivity, more balance. And that in areas that we are reactive, we can bring awareness to bear. We can recover with, you know, in a quicker time. We're not lost as long. We have more space with that. I'm pausing because there was something else that flitted through that I'm waiting to see if it'll come back. So it grows slowly over time, through patience, through our practice, and by bringing our wisdom to bear as things change. So as I said, it gives us the space to feel, and in that the space to heal, and from that the balance to act. So I want to talk a little bit about how I understand the process of developing equanimity as a frame of reference, and then I'll talk more about how it's supported and how we can practice with it. So there's another powerful teaching that the Buddha gives where he he says, what is the difference between my disciples who have realized some fruit of the path and ordinary beings? Both, Both are touched by pleasure and pain in life. This is the teaching of the two arrows. It's as if when they're touched by unpleasant things, painful things that happen, they're shot with one arrow. He says, an ordinary being, when shot with the painful dart or painful arrow of unpleasant things, they shoot a second arrow. They lament, they sorrow, they beat their breast and say, woe is me, why has this happened? It should not be. And in so doing, they shoot a second arrow. This is the reactivity. This is the extra things we add. He says, a noble disciple also experiences unpleasant things, but they don't, but it stops there. They don't lament. They remain equanimous, mindful, fully aware. Viktor Frankl um, is attributed to have said, between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. In that space lies our freedom and our power to choose a response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So that stimulus is the first arrow. And then in the space, when we're aware, when we're practicing, we have the choice. How are we going to respond? Are we going to add reactivity or not? Sometimes just being around other people who are more practiced than we are can communicate this. The story of a younger monk being in the airport with a senior monk 
and something goes wrong with the flight and it's canceled and immediately the younger monk gets very anxious and is, you know, what are we going to do? We have to, you know, and looks and sees and the senior monk is just, hmm, nothing to do. Might as well sit down. And it was like a revelation, like, oh, I didn't know that I could do that. (laughs) I didn't need to get worked up. Like, I could just stop and sit down and not fret. So sometimes just having that example that there's another way to respond can be instructive for us. There are many examples in history of using this understanding to train. In the civil rights movement, the African-Americans and white allies who trained for the sit-ins and the marches did role plays and training in nonviolence to practice equanimity, non-reactivity, you know, in the face of um, violence, sneers, instigation, could they remain nonviolent? So to train in that, I can only imagine they felt a response inside. It wasn't that they didn't have a reaction, but they also had a space to feel it. And in that space, a choice about whether or not to act. So we can have these wild swings inside sometimes. Equanimity doesn't just mean always having balance. Sometimes we don't have balance, but can we bring some balance to what's happening? We start where we are. And so this is, this is the process that I want, to, I want to suggest. It's like if we shoot the second arrow and we start reacting, do we then shoot a third arrow and a fourth arrow and a fifth, right? You know this one. Where does it stop? That's equanimity. When it stops, when we say, okay, enough. Let's, let's take a step back here. What's happening? It's, it's by being non-reactive to our reactivity that equanimity grows. How do you, be, how do you get more patient? By bearing with impatience, right? That's how we learn patience. You don't start off patient. You have to go through being impatient and, and recognizing, gee, this is getting me nowhere. And then something lets go and you relax, right? And you develop patience. It's the same with equanimity. The road to equanimity is not smooth. It's a rocky road. It's up and down. It's through that that we learn equanimity. It's the analogy of the old man sitting in the park who's been through so much in life. The grandmother observing her grandchildren who knows because she's lived through life and has understanding. Yeah, it's a rocky road there. So equanimity grows at the edge of our reactivity. Rather than adding more, there's the space to feel it, to be with it. So this stepping back. As, and, and this is something that's, that's hard to understand sometimes and that's important when we can remember it in our practice and in our life. We can, when we get reactive, we can judge ourselves and think, oh, my practice has gone down the drain. I've not, you know, I've haven't, I haven't attained anything. It's been a waste of time. But to recognize that it's, there, there's always the possibility of having balance with whatever's happening, with the reactivity. It's by being out of balance that we learn balance, right? There's no such thing as balance. 
Show me balance. Do you have a balance? I'd like to see balance. Give me a balance. Where is it? Right? It's a process. So equanimity is like that. It's a process. It's, it's a sensitivity. It's a poise, equipoise. It's always shifting. It's not a thing. Right? And so we learn it by finding the edges, by being out of balance. Dynamic equilibrium. There's a wonderful quote from the Zen tradition, the life of a Zen master is one continuous mistake. (laughs) Beautiful. But just the recovery is very quick. Right? That's equanimity. That's balance. Being out of balance and coming back. Being out of balance and coming back. So because it's not a thing, because it's a process, there are limits to language. So as I share the rest of this evening together about equanimity, keep this frame in mind. One that we learn equanimity by bringing, bringing ourselves to the edge of where we don't have equanimity. That's where it grows. And that it's not a thing. So once you put something into words, it's frozen. It's a thing. Yeah? So we're trying to talk about, we're trying to understand something that's a process, that we're continually uh, refining our understanding of, recognizing that this is, the f- this is one of the fruits of practice, this is one of the fruits of liberation. So to refine our understanding continually of it, keep refining our view. And when something doesn't fit, when something is off, to investigate, to study, to look more closely and say, well, what does equanimity mean? This doesn't seem to fit. And, and come to balance in yourself with that. Try to find it for yourself. So how do we practice equanimity? What do, what do we do to get there? It's a fruit, but we can also do something. It's not just some mysterious thing that dawns at some future time. That's not, the path isn't like that. It's practical. So it's, it begins with a view. Equanimity is based in a certain perspective, a certain understanding of things. It's a wisdom factor. And wisdom in the Buddhist tradition is not some intellectual thing. It's not some philosophy. It's not having a lot of information or knowledge. It's very earthy. It's very grounded. Wisdom means we know which way the wind blows. We know what's up. So what does equanimity understand? Or to be more... uh, more clear, what is the understanding that gives rise to equanimity? We can understand it in two ways. The first of this understanding, this view, is that the universe is lawful, that things have a cause. The classical expression of this is that all beings are the owners of their actions and inherit their results. I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit, but it's this law of causality that things have a cause. And that recognizes the limits of our control. That because the universe is lawful, that because beings are continually creating their own path through their actions, that there's a limit to what we can and can't control in that. So that's the first understanding. And I'm going to say more about this. The second understanding is that things change. That the nature of this reality that we live in is change. 
So why is this important? Why is it important to have this this view, this this perspective? Ever tried to um, unscrew like uh, something in a sink or plumbing, and you can't figure out which way the threads go? Yeah, and so sometimes you keep trying to turn it, and it won't loosen. Right? You've got the wrong information. It, it goes the other way. Once you get the right information, then it works. So this is one analogy for understanding the importance of the view, the perspective. When we have the wrong view, things don't work. We keep trying to do, do it one way, and reality doesn't cooperate. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, it's a reverse thread, and then it works. Another analogy is it's like having a map. So yesterday, Lila used this beautiful ne- analogy that with metta practice, we're expanding the boundaries of our map. We're widening the territory. So this is the result of the first three Brahma-viharas. We widen the territory. Equanimity and wisdom ensures that the map is oriented correctly, that we know where true north is. Otherwise, we're walking around with a map, and if we don't know how to orient it, it's not going to be very useful. So the view, our understanding of things, is the orientation. One of the one of the translations of Dhamma is law, the lawfulness. And the understanding is that when we live in harmony with the way things are, when we understand the cause, the, the, the laws of the system we're living in, then we don't suffer. When we don't understand those laws, then we suffer. It's like you keep trying to do something and it's not working because you don't understand the laws of the system you're in. So living in line with that law is, 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 brings harmony to our hearts. There's less suffering there. So what is this lawfulness? What is this first view of, of, of causes, that things have causes? And how do we practice with this in equanimity? So the traditional phrases, the traditional understanding of this view is all beings are the owners of their action and inherit its results. Their future is born from such action, companion to such action, and its results will be their home. All actions with intention, be they skillful or unskillful, of such acts they will be the heirs. The shorthand of this is all beings are the owners of their action. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes. So we can, we can reflect on this. This is one of the, the, one of the equanimity phrases to reflect on. Why is this important? It allows people to have their path. It allows people to change, to recognize that each of us has our own, our own course to follow and to have a respect for that. It says that we can, we can have certain wishes for another person, but that we can't make their choices for them. And we can have compassion for someone and we can still have a profound trust that they'll be okay as they are because we recognize that, you know, they're the owners of their actions. Now, this can, get, this can get complicated, and I want to try to clarify some of the common misunderstandings that can come up here. Um, first, it doesn't mean that everything that happens 
in one's life or on the planet or to other people is the cause of some past action. That's actually not the teaching. The Buddha was very explicit. He said there are eight causes to unpleasant experiences. Karma is only one of them. There are things like being in the wrong place at the wrong time, bad weather, bandits, like, (laughs) hello. (laughs) You know, so we can look and say like, okay, well, is that homeless person, is he homeless because, you know, well, all beings are the owners of their actions, therefore it's his karma that he's homeless or, you know, it's it's that, that person's karma that they have that disease or that they were abused. That's not the teaching. That's not the teaching at all. Uh, the other teaching that's important here is the Buddha said, um, don't try to understand the net of karma. He said, you'll go crazy. It's too complicated. So what's the point of the teaching? I understand it in two ways. One, it's that we have the power to change what's happening in our life. It's a very, it's a very hopeful, positive teaching. It says that what you do now will have effects. And if we just look at this in our life, you can see each of you are here because of certain things you did, certain things you said, certain things you thought, right? Your present circumstances are the results of your past action. Our future circumstances will be the results of our present action. So it's a teaching that says we can affect the course of our life by what we do and say and think now. It's a very empowering teaching. The other part of the teaching, which is where it comes in very important with equanimity, is it says that just as we are determining the future course of our, of our life through our actions, so too are others doing the same. And that draws a limit. That draws a limit on the sphere of influence we have. It says, know what you can do and what you can't. All beings are the owners of their actions. Their happiness and unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes. So this also doesn't mean we don't act. I think my family has probably taught me the most about this area of equanimity. How to love and act without trying to control, without attachment. You know, we can't save anyone. That doesn't mean we don't act. You know, there's, there's the cliched saying, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't force them to drink. It doesn't mean you don't bring water. Yeah? Those of us who have faced addiction or have family members who faced addiction know this very well. And the pain of that helplessness. Yeah? This is the teaching on equanimity. To, to go to that place, it means we understand the limits of our power our actual domain of influence. It doesn't mean we don't do everything in our power to help, but we do it with a balanced mind. We do it with the understanding that the outcome is not in our hands. And in the heart, how do we practice? How do we build equanimity? Remember, equanimity grows at the edge of our reactivity, where we don't have equanimity. So we bring our awareness to that edge, to the resistance, to the wishing it were otherwise, to the wishing you would do this, change this, fix that. And you hold the mind there. You let it feel that. You let the heart feel the wishing, the contraction, the gripping, until it lets go, until it realizes, I can't do it. It's not in my power. It's by feeling that that the equanimity grows, the space to feel, 
And it's in that space of feeling that we heal. There are profound examples in history of what can, what can be accomplished with this understanding. This very subtle, refined understanding that we, it's not that we don't act, but that we understand the limits of our action. So this is from Thomas Merton, who said, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and may achieve no result at all, or even results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of what you do for itself. This is equanimity, the balance to act. There are stories of a Buddhist monk, Mahagosananda, who used to live not far from here uh, in the, the elder years of his life. He was a monk in Cambodia during the time of the Khmer Rouge when there was terrible civil war and millions of people being killed in the country. And he embodied these Brahmaviharas in such a beautiful way in the refugee camps he would go and he would begin chanting the Metta Sutta. And people would come, it was their, their, their culture, their tradition, and begin chanting. And remember, hatred is not healed through hatred, only through love. And the healing that came from that, being able to find forgiveness. He would walk in through the villages during the time um, of the Khmer Rouge, when he could have been, you know, imprisoned and killed for this, from village to village to the homes of people whose children were enlisting to fight in the Civil War. And he would knock on their doors and say, please tell your sons to put down their rifles and kill the hatred that is in their heart. He took very clear action with great love. But I suspect he understood that he couldn't control what happened, but it didn't mean he didn't choose to act. Someone asked a question about sending metta to um, some of the militants in ISIS and how can we practice metta for that difficult person if we're not trying to change someone. This is where equanimity comes in. This understanding is the difference between the motivation and trying to, to control a certain outcome, that we can still offer that and recognize the limits and recognize, you know, may you have happiness and the causes of happiness. May you be free from hatred with all of our pure motivation and intention. Some of the other phrases that are used in this reflection that recognizes the limits of our action, the limits of our influence. I wish you happiness, but cannot make your choices for you. I care for you, but cannot keep you from suffering. This reflects the understanding. And so we can practice with this by reflecting, by cultivating this view. 
So just as we offer the phrases of loving kindness, we can reflect on these phrases of equanimity, bringing the mind into alignment, finding true north, orienting that map. I care for you, but I cannot keep you from suffering. I wish you to be happy, but I cannot make your choices for you. So this is the first view, the first understanding that equanimity is based in. All beings are the owners of their action. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their wishes, uh, on their actions, not on my wishes. The second is understanding change. It's about knowing which way the wind blows. And in the Buddhist uh, uh, tradition, it, it's talked about as the lokadhamma, the worldly winds, the ways of the world. And this is the inevitability of change. And this is expressed in 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 eight ways. It says that the world spins and revolves around these eight things. Pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, fame and shame. And just, just hearing those, you know, you get a sense, the whole world, humans turning and turning around, pleasure and pain and gain and loss and fame and shame praise and blame, trying to get, trying to avoid, trying to get, trying to avoid. It drives the world. And the understanding is that these just keep turning up and down. It's the nature of the world that these change. And this this rhythm is reflected in everything. The night and the day, the seasons of the year, the breath in and out, the heartbeat pumping. Everything has this rhythm of up and down up and down. And again, this is the law. This is the lawfulness. This is what it means to understand Dhamma, to understand nature, the truth of things the way they are. When we understand that, the map is oriented. We live in line with that truth. We suffer less. This is what the Buddha had to say about the eight worldly winds. And again, there's this beautiful framing of the difference between an awakened being and an ordinary being. And he says, both meet with gain and loss, with disrepute and fame, with praise and blame, with pleasure and pain. When an ordinary being meets with them, they do not understand, they do not reflect. This is impermanent, fragile, subject to change. He or she does not understand it as it really is. Then gain obsesses the mind. Loss obsesses the mind. They become attracted by gain and repelled by loss. Does it sound familiar? When a noble disciple meets with gain, she understands, she reflects. This gain is impermanent, fragile, subject to change. She understands it as it really is, and thus gain does not obsess her mind. Loss does not obsess her mind. She is neither attracted by gain nor repelled by loss. Balance, evenness, steadiness of mind, based on the understanding of change. So how do we practice with this? Again, reflecting on the view recognizing praise and blame, gain and loss. When things come, 
you know, this is a this is a powerful teaching. Do we reflect? Do we recognize? Okay, wait. This is impermanent. This is unstable. This is going to change, right? Or is it? Yes, finally, and it's going to stay this way, and it's great. You know, the new relationship, the new job, the new promotion, or the opposite. You know, the diagnosis, getting fired, the relationship ending. Yeah, when when that downswing comes, do we remember? that it's just a downswing, that things change, there's going to be another side. So, again, recognizing that, coming back to this principle that equanimity grows at the edge, right? We don't want to, you don't go into the deepest part. So it's at the edge, just where we can be with the reactivity, the lack of balance. So, you know, you can reflect on things that have changed, an unpleasant situation that you had. You were late for work, you got sick, you dropped your favorite mug. And in the moment, it was it sucked. You're like, this is not good. You know, you're unhappy, you're frustrated, you're annoyed at yourself. And then what? A week later, a few weeks later, where is it? Eh, it's done, you know? There, and then you're just back, you're here. Or a pleasant thing that happened, you know? Just so you're so great, it was so happy. And then reflect and notice when that faded, when that ended, and then what? Then you were just here again. Here we are. So look for and notice those shifts. Start to pay attention to those changes. Wisdom grows through paying attention, through tracking the way things are happening. Right? It's a pattern recognition. And so we can do this on the gross levels of praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and shame, uh, this is also from the Buddha. They blame those who remain silent. They blame those who speak much. They blame those who speak in moderation. There is no one in the world who is not blamed. <laughs> so next time someone blames you, reflect on that. You know, like it's going to come. It's just part of the world. It's just the way things are. Can we stay balanced with it? Again, this is what the Buddha said to Ananda when he came weeping. Have I not told you? All things that arise must pass. You know this. This is, this is what we're practicing. This is the teaching. It's the elderly person who has lived a rich, full life and can look on with eyes of equanimity. This is one of the translations of Upeka, on-looking equanimity, that, that perspective that knows from experience. It recognizes that these changes are just waves that come up and down. Understands that the flux of all things changing. And that ultimately there's nothing to lose. There's nothing to gain. There's nothing to win. That in the end it's just a flash. This is from First Nation person of the Blackfoot nation, Crowfoot, who lived in the mid-1800s when the government of this country was uh, committing genocide and going back on treaties. He wrote, what is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the winter time. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. 
the space to feel, the space to heal, and the balance to act. So let's sit together for a moment or two. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the winter time. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. As a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so the sage is not moved by praise and blame. A mind, when touched by the worldly winds, remains unshaken, sorrowless, dustless, secure. This is the highest blessing. So there'll be some special chanting tonight at the closing sits. Don't miss it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.